Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get an update on how we should be thinking about uh, these market conditions. We do that today with a good friend of Bloomberg Radio, Christina Hooper. She's a chief global market strategist at Invesco. They have a couple shekels under management, $1.3 billion. Uh, Christina, thanks so much for joining us again. All right, so we've had a couple of days of some sell-offs here, and I guess people were just kind of, you know, asking just casually, is this something, just a little bit of a pullback, what is you know, a longer-term bull market, or is this showing some cracks in what had been a pretty good uh, narrative for this market? I think it's a short-term pullback. And, and quite frankly, I think we should have expected it. Um, what we saw was the 10-year yield go up significantly earlier this year, and markets react to it, reacted to it, particularly tech, because of its higher valuations, it's more sensitive. Uh, and uh, then uh, as yields back down, there was this wave of relief, and people started changing their expectations for the 10-year for the rest of, of 2021. Um, I've always expected that the 10-year yield will finish the year at 2% or higher, and that means some pressure on stocks, particularly tech stocks, as they digest uh, those higher levels of rates. That doesn't mean that this is the end. Um, it just means we're going through an adjustment period. So Kriti Gupta was on earlier, though, and told us, you know, the big um, FANG stocks are now sitting at the kind of valuations we saw in 2019. Um, why, you know, completely reset? Aren't, aren't we still expecting um, the, the pandemic trends to be sticky and hold as we reopen? Well, I think certainly some pandemic trends will be sticky. We are going to see elevated e-commerce sales going forward. As one example, we are going to see more of a hybrid model for many employees. Uh, they're going to be working from home more often. Uh, so, so certainly some trends hold, even if they moderate a bit. But we're also not factoring in that companies have significant cash on balance sheets. Uh, and in an expansionary environment, they're likely to spend more on investment. And I would argue more of those investment dollars are going to go into tech. In fact, if we look at the last Federal Reserve Beige Book, the Cleveland Fed reported uh, that some of its contacts indicated they were planning to adopt more technology in lieu of more employees to keep up with demand, uh, given that it's, it's been difficult to source employees. Yeah, Christina, that's kind of where I wanted to go. I mean, we've now had a couple of days to digest that you know, exceptionally weak jobs report on Friday. One of the narratives that's, I think, finding its way into the marketplace is, boy, if corporate America wants to get people back to work, they're going to have to raise pay, and that might cause some wage inflation into this economy. How do you think about Friday and maybe what it might mean going forward for the economy and for policymakers? Well, I certainly believe there is some truth uh, to the argument that uh, we are um, we have generous fiscal stimulus, including generous unemployment benefits, and that is one deterrent uh, to people returning to work. But we have to recognize that that is a relatively short-term deterrent. Uh, it ends in September, and in fact, some states are ending it uh, as soon as June. 
So, uh, but there are other reasons, right? We've got health safety concerns. We've got public transportation schedules that are um, not back to normal yet. And we have childcare issues for many Americans. All those issues are very short-term in nature. So, yes, we're already starting to see wage increases in some industries in some regions. But I don't think we're going to see any kind of dramatic uh, overall increase in wages. Uh, there should be more workers coming online in the coming months. What about the idea that growth and, you know, earnings, uh, economic growth and earnings growth has peaked in this quarter or is peaking as we speak? I absolutely disagree with that. Um, we are just beginning what I think is going to be a very strong uh, economic acceleration. And so I don't believe earnings have peaked. Um, I don't think we're anywhere near peaking right now. All right, Christina, what are the sectors that you guys are, are doing the most work in right now? Um, well, of course, our view is that in an, in an environment like this where the economy is accelerating, Typically, we're going to see cyclicals outperform, and that's likely to continue uh, through this year. But that doesn't mean that we want to uh, completely dismiss or overlook the growth side of the equation. In fact, days like today remind us that there can be valuation opportunities created uh, in this kind of environment, uh, especially for tech. Now, are, are we getting? Are we now at a point where tech is a screening buy? No, um, but it certainly looks more attractive today than it did look a few days ago, and it could look more attractive in a few more days. Uh, so, for those with a long-term investment horizon, which I hope that everyone has, um, this could be an opportunity to pick up some some really attractive names at lower prices. How important is it, by the way, that Biden gets his infrastructure, his spending plans through? Well, we certainly already have a very robust environment in terms of fiscal stimulus. If we look at the U.S. now versus how much um, we saw in the way of fiscal outlays during the global financial crisis, the percentage of GDP, we're doing much better now. Um, so it's not as important, but it would be nice to have. Christina, thanks so much for joining us. Christina Hooper is the chief global market strategist at Invesco with more than a trillion dollars, more than a trillion and a third under management, this is Bloomberg. Let's get over now to Mark Nelson. He's the CEO of, of Tableau, um, which can hardly be considered a small cap. They were bought for more than $15 billion by Salesforce back in, I think, 2019, 2000, right? Pre-pandemic was that, that deal. Mark joins us on the future of enterprise technology and how analytics can transform business. Those are kind of uh, jargony taglines there, Mark. But w what are you really doing to change the way people work day by day? Yeah, thanks for having me this morning. Um, so our mission here at Tableau has always been to help people see and understand data. We're at a point in the universe where the ability to gather data, store data, process data, and then look at it and make decisions from it has really introduced something that is as transformational as the microscope or the telescope. It really lets you see things about the world around you that have kind of always been there, but you've never had the ability to see it. And, and our mission is really to provide a tool that let, lets people work with that data, understand that data, and answer questions in their day-to-day -day life, not just analysts, but every knowledge worker as they're doing their jobs. 
being able to see the data that's relevant to them, understand it, and make decisions based on it. Mark, how has your business of Tableau, how did it change during the pandemic? Has it been materially changed during the pandemic? Of course, they got bought. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, so two, two separate questions that I can talk about. So during the pandemic, like the last year has, has made every business a, go through a digital transformation if they weren't already. And the heart of every digital transformation is a data transformation. Things have been changing so fast in the world and for every business. The businesses that have thrived have been the ones that have been able to empirically measure what's going on in their business and, and just react to it so much faster. That need to be able to see, understand, and react and make decisions based on data has been huge. And we've really seen that for our customers everywhere from, you know, customers who are quickly adopting a digital model and e-commerce to those dealing with the front line of the pandemic and trying to get out COVID data and trying to, to validate vaccines. On the acquisition, you know, the combination of Tableau and Salesforce together um, is like putting peanut butter and chocolate together, right? Like you take the amazing customer 360 application suite from Salesforce that works on and generates some of the most valuable data for a business. And Tableau that lets you see and understand that data and get answers from that data. And you just have this ability to do things you were never able to do before, to really get a sense of your business and a sense of where your business is going that you were never able to do before. So those two things, hmm. you know, temporarily related, but have been great. And I mean, I love that. So Tableau has started, I think, at least in part with help from the defense department, right? The U.S. Um, and Stanford. Uh, obviously, everything starts at Stanford. But Mark Benioff calls the company his brother from another mother, <laughs> which I think is pretty uh, cool. And now you're doing uh, now you're helping to um, try and attack the racial inequality problem, the, the sort of diversity and inclusion problems as well. How's that work? Yeah, for sure. So data is so useful on on helping with these large societal problems, right, that are so emotionally charged and can get wrapped up in, in a whole bunch of things. Data is our superpower, right? What we bring to that is the ability to, you know, really look at data and understand it to help understand what the problems are, um, what solutions can be uh, found for these, and how effective those solutions are. And so during this, we have uh, launched the Racial Equity Data Hub, along with our, our partners like PolicyLink, to really provide data and to do a couple of things. One is to democratize access to that data so a, a whole bunch of people can help work on these really hard problems. To uh, de-aggregate that data so that you can really get down to which, which groups are really being affected by this. And then ultimately to be able to let people see data about these problems. So again, we can help find solutions and measure the efficacy of those solutions as they're implemented. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it, uh, Mark Nelson, CEO of Tableau. Talk to us about uh, you know enterprise computing, uh, particularly as you know during this pandemic, there's been such a digitization of so many businesses uh, more than than before. And of course, that generates a tremendous amount of data and that generates demand and then the need for management teams to get a, a real handle on, on, on that data and what it means for their businesses and the good folks at Tableau uh, help with that. Now let's bring in Brad McMillan. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Commonwealth Financial 
network. They have about $233 billion in assets under management. And let me first ask you about this. I think the word sell-off has been overused a little bit. Certainly, uh, markets are down 1.5% on the Dow and the S&P. They were down yesterday as well. Does this look like we're going into a correction to you, Brad? Or um, how do you judge what is mostly really a, a big tech slump? And I think that's exactly right. The tech companies have gotten ahead of themselves a bit. Um, they're pulling back. You know, I don't think this is anything out of the ordinary. There's a lot of talk about inflation going up, but this isn't really news. There's nothing news out there. So I think this is just normal action. I don't see this. think this is the start of anything worse. All right. So where are you, Brad, in terms of where you're looking to allocate capital here? I mean, in the equity markets, it's that pull and push between, you know, I'm sticking with those big cap growth names. They've worked so well for me since the financial crisis, really, if you think back that far. Uh, or do I play that rotation trade, that reopen trade? Where are you kind of uh, looking these days? I think the rotation trade makes a lot of sense. Not that the big, you know, tech mega caps aren't going to do well. Of course they are. But that's what investors expect. What you want to do is play where investors aren't looking yet. So when you look at financials, for example, you have banks that are all of a sudden starting to make money. And as the economy reopens, they're going to be in a position to make more. You look at housing. Yes, that's a story that's gotten a lot of press. But the millennials are moving out to the suburbs in a big way. In other words, let's get to where the puck is going, not to where the puck is. And that's the rotation trade. What do you think about the banks? You know, um, they have they're on the upside today and they've had some momentum lately with the cyclicals. But um, we're not getting any indication that rates are going to rise within the next couple of years. And when you look at the bank's business model, historically, that's been a red flag, no question. But then when you start to look at banks and financial service firms more generally, they're moving away from interest rate driven um, revenue generation. They're moving more towards fees. And as you move to a more productized financial economy, you know, some of the biggest financial platforms, you know, the major banks, for example, are uniquely positioned to start to change that business model. And I think that's exactly what you're seeing. So not only will it be a more, um, more reliable revenue stream, it also frees them from the tyranny of the interest rate cycle. Now, that story's not done yet, but that's where they're headed. I think that's part of what's driving this and taking it away from the interest rate story. Brad, one of the concerns out there is taxes and how this tax scheme in this country uh, may change going forward, both at the corporate level uh, and at the personal level. How do you think about that? Well, I look at it this way. If you look at the, if you look at the Biden tax proposal, some of the analyses I've seen says that, okay, that could hit S&P earnings somewhere between 5 and 10 percent, depending on sector. Okay, fair enough. And, you know, if you just kind of straight line that, that could knock some points off the market. But again, that's not a big deal in the broad scheme of things. And when you start to think about what's actually going to happen, which probably isn't what's proposed, and then you start to compare that with the time frame and how earnings are likely to increase over that time frame, I don't think there's going to be a material impact over time. There might be a glitch, but we got a lot of cushion here to absorb that if it happens, and it hasn't happened yet. What's the biggest headwind? What's the biggest risk that you're, that you're watching out for? I'm watching employment. One of the things that um, 
is assumed in a lot of analyses, including mine, is that we're going to see job growth, you know, bounce back, and we're going to be back to something like normal employment, not full employment, but something like normal at the end of the year. But one of the things that came up with the most recent jobs report, I look at the number. I'm not worried about the number because a lot of that is seasonal adjustments. And if you look at the non-seasonally adjusted numbers, we're right on track. So I'm not worried about that. But one of the questions is, are people really willing to go back to work? And I think that's something that a lot of us, me included, haven't thought about enough. So job growth is going to be the key for the rest of the year. Are you concerned about uh, wage inflation coming into this economy? Not really. And the reason I say that is when you look at wage inflation, first of all, it's been depressed over the past couple of decades. Yep. So, you know, I, th I think some catch up here is, frankly, overdue. From an economic standpoint, you'll hear a lot about the effects on inflation, which I don't think is necessarily the case because we don't have the transmission mechanisms like unions and wage price agreements that we had in the 70s. Right. But more to the, more to the point, that money is going to be spent. That's actually going to be additive to growth. Those people yep. are, by and large, going to spend the money, and that's going to help. Right. I think it's a good thing. All right, Brad. Really appreciate it. Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer for Commonwealth Financial Network, giving us his thoughts on the market still long that rotation trade. I want to bring in Margaret Franklin. She is the president and CEO of the CFA Institute. And so many of our listeners, Margaret, are CFAs or want to become CFAs. It's great timing to have you on because just yesterday I was talking to a younger CFA, and of course, Paul Sweeney is himself uh, an older CFA. I was wondering, <laughs> has the test gotten harder? Are you making it more difficult? Well, I think it depends on what you've been focusing on and how long ago you wrote it. Um, of course, the test will seem a lot harder um, if you wrote it 20 years ago, just because of the very nature of the capital market. So the quality and rigor are consistent, but they do match what's going on in the market. So I know I would have to study pretty hard for the exams today, irrespective of already having my CFA charter. Margaret, I want to talk about uh, a topic that's become much, much bigger part of the investment process, and that's ESG investing. You look at the environment, social, and governance here. How does the CFA Institute think about ESG and making sure that you know, its charter holders you know, need, know what they need to know? Well, you've touched on something that has been important for about the last five years uh, of note, but has been accelerating since Davos in um, 2000, January 2020. And this is an excellent example of what is now required of all investment professionals, which is lifelong continuous learning. Anybody five years ago wouldn't have had the ESG skills, broadly speaking, that are required now from a portfolio perspective. So in addition to the CFA Charter, um, we have launched this year the ESG Certificate. It was created by our CFA UK Society, um, and we've taken that global uh, in the last two months. And it really um, enables uh, investment professionals to have the skills necessary to think about um, ESG incorporating in them into their portfolio, security selection, and meeting client, uh, meeting client needs. So that's one aspect of. Hang on, is that another? Is that a, an, another year of study then, or, or can CFA um, perspectives earn both at the same time? 
anybody can write it and you can do it concurrent although um i i want to hear from those who are actually doing both at the same time and the tips and tricks that they're doing for it um anybody can write it in fact um the experience with the with it initially has been that it's a lot of non-members and non-charter holders that are writing it um, and that really speaks to the very pervasive uh, need for it we had conducted a study um, of a million um, LinkedIn profiles and, in fact, um, really less than 8,000 people out of a million had listed um, ESG skills. And then we simultaneously did a look at 10,000 job postings and of that, almost 30% uh, were looking for those types of skills. So we know out there that there is a real supply and demand gap, and we think that this ESG certificate does a really fabulous job of meeting that. Margaret, I know uh, May 18th, the Alpha Summit is going to take place. You're going to be part of that. Tell us about the summit and kind of what are some of the key topics uh, you all plan to tackle there? Well, it's very exciting. This is our annual conference, which will be virtual this year for investment professionals around the globe. Um, they will be live conversations on a broad range of topics, and they're led by really change makers in the industry. So to just um, leverage off uh, the conversation we just had, we had our we have our net zero um, carbon emissions conversation that will be uh, with a panel of three, but most notably uh, Mary Robinson, the former Prime Minister from Ireland uh, and Special Envoy to um, Special Envoy to the UN on Climate, uh, is going to be part of that conversation. And in our preparation for it, one of the things she said was this is the most important year coming up to COP26 in probably one of the most important moments in time for humankind. Um, and so it's really getting the right people at the table for those important topics. We have Hiro Mizuno, who is UN Special Envoy on Innovative Finance and Sustainable Investment. And, of course, he's just come off of being um, the re reformational uh, chief investment officer for the world's largest pension plan, uh, the Japan GPIF, and a really provocative thinker, very vocal on how to implement portfolios uh, with a climate aspect to it. We've got Michael Lewis speaking. I was going to um, say. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he has, speaks about every few years when he's got a good provocative book out. Um, he's articulate. He's entertaining, and he holds no punches at all when he is speaking to this particular audience because, again, yeah. it's investment professionals and capital allocators. Yeah, absolutely. And we're starting to see, Margaret, um, issues pop up about um, compliance, know your customer. Uh, again, kind of yeah. – we're starting to see almost uh, great financial crisis style issues, not that that, that prevalent, of course. H how important is that in the CFA? And are there are there aspects of the test that you have been emphasizing more than others as as time goes on? Yeah, so I think um, first of all, let me start by saying everything with the e uh, with uh, CFA really does center on ethical and fiduciary orientation. That is putting your client's interests um, ahead of yourself, and critically important to build and restore trust within the system. Um, we do have obviously the CFA. Uh, charter program, which is foundational in nature, and it changes with the time. So it's got about just close to 20% um, of ESG ingrained, uh, integrated throughout the program, uh, derivative, much more on the private client um, than, for instance, many of us 
uh, from years ago would have written. So, you know, there's the practical application as well as foundational, um, foundational knowledge. But our professional learning and much of our research and advocacy is becoming much more responsive to an accelerated um, changing nature between um, social media, uh, new strategies, and things that are incredibly important for people to be thinking about. So we've been vocal on SPAC uh, products, and we're actually um, establishing a working group to provide uh, input for, for instance, to the uh, SEC who are also looking at this. And so those are things that can pop up very quickly that are meaningful where we think CFA Institute right. with its convening power and broad constituent group can add to that conversation. Hey, Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Fascinating stuff. Margaret Franklin, she's the CEO of CFA Institute, uh, talking about sustainable investing, ESG, uh, and how the CFA prepares folks for that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.